When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And married me a wife, she gave me trouble all my life. Drove me out in the cold rain and snow. Rain and snow, rain and snow, rain and snow, rain and snow. Drove me out in the cold rain and snow. You know, that's not, that's not my culture. Like, you know, to say, oh, American, and identify, like, you know, Jewish kids from Chicago, you know, identifying with that is just a little bit, it's like, you know, Jewish kids from Chicago, you know, being the hottest Hawaiian guitar players around. There's something wrong there somewhere. And, uh, uh, and it's, you know, it's not because they're Jewish, it's not even because they're from Chicago, it's because it's whoever they're, they're, they're making a mistake, you know, thinking that, that by, you know, reproducing licks, they're, they're doing, they're doing what, what that meant. I can reproduce the licks of that of that kind of music in in my voice. It doesn't mean it's my it's my music or anything more than the, than the fact that I like it. It's something. I mean, it's it's uh, sometimes people people are suspicious of my identification with Irish music. You know, why would I do it? You know, either they make some kind of, some kind of stupid obvious thing like, oh, you're you're Irish American. That, that therefore you identify with it. You know. No, I mean I'm Irish American, but I identify with Indian music. You know, it doesn't make me that either. There's something about the music itself that that is that is that is the compelling thing. Not 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 me or my imagined genetic connections with it. And then the claim that there was a John Dowd, at least Coleman said it that there was a John Dowd, that's what Martin Wynn told me, that there was a John Dowd and that Coleman said, I never could play like John Dowd. And there was a Matty Killoran, nothing to Paddy Killoran. And Ladd and them, he always said that he was great too. And there was a Jack McHugh around there, great musician. There was another guy in the name of Scanlon. They used to call him Kipping Scanlon. He called the boy the Kipping. And he used to go to Scotland. He was a kind of... He used to go to Scotland and he came back. And uh, he used to bring tunes from Scotland over and play in Philiburns. And then they brushed up a lot of them and that's like... Miss McLeod's and Lord MacDonald's and all them was Scotch. And the banks and all that, they used to do a job on them. That's what I hear anyway. There was a Joseph Gallagher. They called him Joe Lackey. He lived about two miles away from me as the crow flies. He was a great player. He was a great player. And Phil McConnell two of the best that I knew before I went to America. And then I had a few with the deck, and my mother was a great player. 
I had a few of the Decker records that time. And I was playing them until the war out. I am from an island off the coast of California, off the coast of Southern California, uh, called Santa Catalina, although everybody calls it Catalina now, not Santa Catalina. It's the only Santa or San, the only Spanish name place in all of America that's actually lost the holy part at the front of it because it's too many syllables for the English-speaking voice. As a matter of fact, it's a nice place. Kind of like Ireland, in fact, because although it's uh, excessively beautiful and a wonderful place to be, um, if you are from there, you have to leave in order in order to gain education and or employment. It's very difficult to actually find a, some way to live on the island itself. I left first when I was seven. My two brothers were older. My mother was a romantic and made my father get a job get jobs in weird places like Afghanistan and Ethiopia. And uh, the first place, in fact, was Afghanistan, but there was a war going on, so we didn't get to join him. But her, her idea in making, making him get jobs in weird places was so that she could go be Bonamakubwa and stuff, because she had read all kinds of Isaac Dennison and Lawrence Durrell, and she just thought this life abroad for the European slash American was, was something to be experienced at the very least. So I had the experience from the age of seven until I was ten of living in the wilder parts of Ethiopia. But then, uh, because my mother had fallen in love, on the way back we stopped over for a few months in Lebanon, uh, which was absolute paradise after Ethiopia. So we moved back there after two years in the States in 1955 when I was 11 years old. Uh, we, we moved to Beirut, and I in fact grew up Spent the next six years in Beirut, graduated from high school there. Uh, I started at the local um, English language Arab school. It was a boys' school for three years. And then this American school down the hill from us was in plain view. And I, women, girls back in those days wore those big, big uh, dresses with the petticoats underneath them. And there were all these bright pastels. And you could see them a mile away. Just the, the concept of, of females at about age 14 was, was too much. So I made my mother put me and my brother into the school down the hill. So I actually graduated from the last three years of high school were at this uh, American community school, which is basically the same school, only it had mostly Americans in it and girls. But I I made friends. uh, My brother and I made friends with people from all over the Middle East, Iraqis and Jordanians and Syrians and uh, Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, Turkish Cypriots, uh, all kinds of people who just found themselves for various reasons at these one of, one of these two schools that we attended there. Uh, I also started sailing a great deal. My first, my first passion, the first, the first activity that I had a passion for was, was uh, sailing sailboats and that kind of thing. I was a in the shade of the cedars of Lebanon, and I Come back home again 
with what we find. Tully Cooley, Drumair, just about two mile, three mile outside the town. A nice little place, got plenty of nice scenery, but you can't live on scenery alone. And it was very hard for the people around there to make ends meet. And there was no work for me, period. And I, I was raised in a farm, and when you bring cattle out to a fair, and coming back and you're wet, trying to sell them, it, I decided that it was time to bail out try for something better. I went to America, I was 11 days by boat. I left on around the 5th of December and I arrived there on Christmas. I went to Cove and Cork and we went out in a tender. The tender took us out to the boat and we looked back at Ireland and there was, there was no one laughing. It was all sad eyes, and it was 11 days then, the waves lapping, and you couldn't even sleep in bed. There was a couple of bunk beds in it, and there was an old man sleeping under, uh, he was upstairs in that bunk bed, and he was afraid he'd fall out of the bed, and it was, it was very rough. So anyway, we arrived in, in Halifax in Canada. We got out that night, we didn't, everyone was let off the boat. And I was like a, a young calf after getting out when I arrived and landed. A great feeling of something solid under my feet. And uh, we started the next day down the Hudson to New York and arrived in New York. And back from that, I had no, never any regrets from it. I didn't like it at first because I always wanted to, to come home. In fact... I was inclined to come back only for shame because I would have came back. But after a while I got a job, you find out you get a pension and it was a better country that time than the one I left.
the Cold War was in full swing, but not, uh, but nothing, nothing dangerous, nothing unpleasant, uh, like shooting, you know, Asians or South Americans or anything like that. Um, so I joined the Navy for uh, three years, intending to be a uh, uh, what they call a quartermaster, who's the sort of person who who steers the ships and does does navigation and that sorts of thing. But uh, in their wisdom, they made me because I I passed certain tests at certain levels. They decided to make me a journalist. Uh, so they sent me instead of sending me out to the fleet to be a, a ship driver, they sent me to journalist school where I spent um, about six months learning how to uh, produce newspapers and take photographs and develop them and radio technique and that sort of thing. And then uh, instead of sending me off uh, to do a ship or station newspaper or radio station or something like that, because I came in at the top of my class, they sent they habitually sent the, the top graduates off to one of the um, fleet headquarters as a public information specialist. <laughs> 18-year-old public information specialist. Uh, so I got sent to, to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. It was my office and my shift that was in charge of things uh, on the night of the, the Tonkin Gulf incident. Do you remember the Tonkin Gulf incident? That was the... The, the night when uh, uh, North Vietnamese speedboats allegedly uh, came out and fired torpedoes at a couple of innocently patrolling American destroyers out in the Gulf, the Gulf of Tonkin, which is the, water, the waters off of North Vietnam. In my case, it was mostly, uh, I spent most of my time with uh, either the junk forces, which was very exciting, despite the name. A, a junk forces were these, were these sort of uh, uh, motor-powered little wooden boats that the the Vietnamese used for, for just running around the coast and the river areas, uh, checking for contraband, for arms, shipments, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then the, the, the scarier bits were when I was with the, the Vietnamese Marines because they got shot at a lot. They did an awful, lot of, awful little amount of shooting back. Um, I certainly did very little, but I spent an awful lot of time loving the dirt. Uh, and uh, I'd, I'd gotten used to the sound of, of heavy... Heavy weapons in uh, in 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 Beirut because I was there in 1958 when the when the 58 uh, civil war happened the sort of dress rehearsal for the all the badness that happened in the 70s and 80s and I I, I could distinguish the sound of a 30 caliber machine gun from a 50 caliber machine gun and stuff like that and uh, I remember the occasional twig getting knocked off a tree in our front yard in Beirut by stray bullets. Uh, and I, I was quite un, unprepared for the fact that when a 50 caliber machine gun opens up in a forest, in a jungle area, um, a 50 caliber bullet can and will knock down entire trees. So at the end of, of whatever battles we were invariably found ourselves in, I, I was always un, under about three feet of fallen tree, feeling, feeling very safe as, they, as these things piled in on top of me. While I was there, I noticed that the that the government was getting all of its intelligence, as it called it, from from junior officers in, in the military, which is uh, logically uh, an extremely bad idea. Uh, a junior officer is somebody who's who's bound and determined uh, that he's going to be a senior officer someday, and you can't do that in in, in any military, let alone the uh, American military, without a real war to to prove your credentials of of macho bravery and that sort of thing. So they were telling the U.S. government right in front of us 
if not blatant lies and at least blatant distortions uh, about what we could do, what we'd get away with, what toys we needed to do it with, and that kind of thing. Um, and I was horrified when the government pursued, after I got out of the Navy and left Vietnam, the government pursued an ever more intensive participation, sending more and more troops in to fight the battle on the ground. This is against conventional wisdom uh, on any scale. Um, President Eisenhower had warned against getting involved in a land war in Asia. There's all kinds of cliches floating around, most of them against the war. The only cliches that you could find in support of it were more or less jingoistic, simplistic things. It, it was very easy for me as, as a semi-intellectual to, to, to combat with the people who mattered to me. My friends and my immediate family uh, were people who I, who, I, who I turned to in an effort to dissuade them from from supporting the war. They thought at first that I was off my trolley because the American president doesn't lie to the people. Come morning on the slate gray sea The eye informs him endlessly Horizon dawn surrounded night serene And steady in his sights He measures time from fading stars Brings down the sun to tell how far To here and now the hidden pearl In bearings, wheels and worms And all true sailors go without for him Where all true sailors As what might be Where all true sailors see Each eternally From weather instinct Distant thrills Or duty some will find it here And rise to overlook the sea Where ocean Dreams of what to be Now ice and steam Now stormy thing Now roads to stream On ways to wing Through time the tunnel Endless brief To glory God of And all true sailors Go atop a hill Where all true sailors As what might be Where all true sailors reach eternally Well, I got very confused about it with the down my sister-in-law took me down to Wall Street and you look up at the sky and you could see no light at all. It was all a building. You couldn't, in fact, if you did put your head back to look up at the building, you'd fall over. They were that high. And uh, I said, I could never work here. I could never work here. Little I knew that it'd be working down there in years to come. 
uh, after a while you get used to it. In uh, New York has a name of hustle and bustle and running and racing and things like that. You don't have to. You can take your time and walk and you'll just get there as fast. When I went there, I was about a week there and my brother used to tell me about this great musician, Laddie Byrne. And uh, it was a Friday night and he said, he's coming here tonight. So Lad came to the house. In fact, his first name is James O'Byrne. He's a son of Philip Phil O'Byrne's, you know, that real Phil O'Byrne's delight. So he was supposed to teach Coleman. Anyway, I, Lad asked me to play a few tunes and I played a few tunes, but uh, in the end, I asked Lad, Lad took the fiddle and started playing and I played the high level. And I, after a while, I gave the fiddle to Lad and Lad played the high level and I said to myself, I can't play at all. I know nothing about playing compared to the way he played it. I used to hear Coleman on a record on it and there was another part in it that Lad put to it and I thought it was very, very graceful. And I went out in the next day and I was on the street and didn't I see this big man on the street and who was an only lad? And uh, I asked him where he was living. He said, I'm living just right up in that house up there. So for years, we're always pals and always played every weekend. Lad didn't like to be recorded. Him and Martin Wynn didn't like to be recorded at all. But uh, you always, if you went to his apartment, it was very hard to get him to play. And you took the fiddle and started playing. And he would say to you, isn't it as well to do with the right way is the wrong way? And you just say to him, well, I have it the wrong way, but I would like to get it the right way. Give us a, uh, you do it. And then he took the fiddle and started playing and then he was off. He played for hours then. The Bronx was the place for the music. They were all in a about 10 minutes walk apart. And it was always of a Saturday night or a Sunday night. You went to a, a session in an apartment and they all, everyone that went in there, they always brought a bottle or something and whether it was drank or not, they always, they didn't go empty-handed and they always brought a bottle and it was, it was a pleasure. But uh, you'd come home and you'd have no tape recorder and you'd go into the bathroom and close the door and close the window and put a mute on the fiddle and try to play what you heard. But then, then you'd have to get up in the morning. So between the war, which I hated, and the general culture, which I was not, not in tune with, and Richard Nixon, whom I've always, always loathed, just the, the sight of the man who used to make my gorge rise, um... He was doing things like cutting the funds out of the educational programs that among, besides keeping me uh, in college as a graduate student, uh, they also paid the wages of most of the teachers of, of Russian in America. I was st- studying Russian at the time, not for, not for any particular reason, just because it was the only interesting thing that they were offering when I started my studies. And was in my, uh, my first year as a graduate student when Nixon cut the funds out of the program that was paying my way and 
paying the wages of most of the university professors of the language in America. So the net result was I couldn't hope to get any work at all as a Russian language specialist because there were all these people with a lot more experience than me as teachers and as translators and stuff. Uh, and given this sort of um, uneducable, unemployed uh, status and the fact, the curious fact that the only thing in the world that made sense to me uh, being some records that a friend of mine, Dennis Brooks, uh, an American Ellen Piper who now lives in Cork, I, I met him in, uh, in California in 1968, and when I expressed an interest in, in Irish music, he dragged me down to this Irish import shop in Los Angeles and had me buy the first two Chieftain's albums and the wonderful uh, King of the Pipers, the first, one of the first clutter records by uh, Leo Rosum. Uh, and those three records, along with uh, a record that I picked up myself called Shanarita Segeri, was something that I could come home to from this silly job I had on the road stuffing psychedelic posters back into their plastic bags. It was the only thing that made any sense to me in the whole world. And I, I rationalized that this, uh, there had to be this country somewhere called Ireland that had values which were being spoken of in this music uh, that I could understand or at least relate to. So I um, sold everything I had, packed up my family and my dog, and we set off to Ireland, arriving here only to find, in fact, that uh, this is back in 1971, while the revival of interest in Irish music had started, even, even though there was this resurgence of interest in it, it was still an extremely small minority of Irish people who actually uh, enjoyed the music, actually had any thought for it but contempt. In fact, the contempt for it was so pervasive and so great that I didn't even notice it at first. Um, it was over my head, basically. I was three years in the States and I came back at Christmas. I took the vacation of one year the year, and then I took the vacation of the next year and put the two of them together, and I had four weeks. That meant when I went back, I had no vacation or no holidays the next year, and it was rather sad. I don't know, could it be as bad going into jail? <laughs> it, was very, it was very hard. and Your mind wasn't on your work for weeks and weeks after. Then after for a while, you forget about it. I was 11 days going there. And when I, I come back then the second time, and it was eight years without coming back, and I came home in uh, something less than five hours. And I was six and a half going back. I uh, wanted to come back, very much so. But I, as I think I said it before, I was ashamed to come back. I was, people would say I wasn't able to make out. And I'd have got to like it. It was a great country. It's, there's no there's no big shots there. They are big shots, but no one cares about them. They're left alone. And there's no class distinction there. And no matter who you are or what you are, the guy that's sweeping in the street is as good as you are. 
it's a different country to uh, the country that I left entirely. But still, it's a good country if you want to make out in it. And there's the other side to it too. If you want to spend all your life in a bar and uh, forget about work, you'll, you'll find it very awkward. You'll soon wind up down the Bowery. wasn't so much Sligo town, which I, I, I got in. I, I'd, I'd arrived with my family in, in Ireland to find, you know, as, as, a, as a cultural refugee, as I was saying, um, and had to find a place to stay. Uh, we went up for a bit to the, to the north, uh, to Antrim, to stay with uh, a friend of ours who had bought a house just outside of Ballycastle. And that was pleasant enough, but he was... Um, he was rich and famous and could afford to buy his house and, and enter and fix it up. And we were just basically looking for a place to exist. We came back down to Dublin because that seemed the logical place to be. We'd met some people down here. But uh, it was obviously not, not the place for us to be. Uh, it was a bit depressing. It was like January of uh, 1972 by this time. And uh, I decided that I'd go on a scouting trip around the country and in a, in a counterclockwise direction. So I... Because we'd been to the north, I took the train up to Sligo and was intending to sort of make my way around the coast. So I got to Sligo on a, uh, on a Tuesday night. And this is back when Wednesday was market day in Sligo, so the whole town would be like closed. Closed after, after 12 o'clock noon. And uh, I right away met some people who told me about some other Americans who had been living in Sligo and had vacated this house out in the country. And my, my antenna went up, and the, um, the fellow I was talking to very nicely telephoned the, the owner of the house, and the owner of the house took me out there. Now, up, up to this point, I wasn't particularly enthused uh, by anything in Sligo. It seemed very much like all the other places I'd been in, in, in Ireland. Uh, but on the road out to the house where we eventually lived for seven years, um, I got this very strange feeling. I noticed that for some bizarre reason, I recognized the place. I, it, it, it didn't belong to any of my memories, but I had this strange feeling that I knew this place that we were going to. Uh, I knew the house that we went to. I knew the surrounding hillside. I knew everything about it. 
Uh, and so with this buzz still in my mind, I came back to to uh, Dublin and collected my family, and we went we went down there to live. first discoveries I made after I'd been living in Sligo for a little bit was the, the, the queer um, comforting feeling that everything in Sligo was the right size and shape and speed and color for me. These, these colors and shapes and speeds and sizes were all radically different from the ones uh, that you'd find in California. If if this were as 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 gloomy a country as people think it is, uh, it might be fairly dire. But and I, I think that's the key of it. A friend of mine living down at a particular place in uh, in Sligo uh, for about three years running was was in the same place. She's an American in the same place uh, for three summers in a row, and she took a series of photographs out out her front door, looking across Ballisadare Bay down towards Enniscrone and, and the, the mountains down on that side of the thing. And she must have had a series of about 36 pictures, all of them of exactly the same landscape, from exactly the same point of view. And not one of them looked like it was the same place. I came here in Everfrida. And I looked out at the waves lapping. And it was a good day and the scenery was beautiful. And I was kind of, after coming back, I was kind of bewitched But what I saw on the, and all that. And I got a place. Then I bought it in Mamunda. And then after going back, I could, could kick myself. I said, what the hell did I want this for? <laughs> More of a headache. So it's 
a place to stay and I spend time here and I spend time over there and I like it back and forth. And it's not much to travel. I could, before years ago when I used to come home, it took me as long to go down to the West as I would be back in America. So the world has changed very much so. I didn't find the real changes until, like I used to come, when I used to come, I was coming on a vacation. And the bright side was always on the outside and it looked good. But when you come home here to live, to spend time here and that you don't have to, to get up in the morning, it, it, I found out that it was much, much different. I, I'd say, did the people change? But no, maybe they didn't. Maybe it was me that changed. And then there's a bus stop outside of my door. I look out at the bus stop and I see the people going to work. And then I'd say to myself, oh, I'm a waster. No job, no nothing. I couldn't get used to it, not getting up and going to work. It took me a long time to get used to it. I might sometimes, and sometimes I get very fed up with it too. I'd put it in the case I wouldn't take it for for weeks. But it's still, it's a kind of a tranquilizer. I like it. It's it's a help for you. It's a great mental help for you. For me, there can be no uh, no beauty without change. That's uh, a fundamental principle of whatever uh, religion I've managed to 
to develop for myself. Uh, that's the, the notion of life without death would be a complete joke. The notion of beauty without change is, a, is an absolute farce. Plastic flowers. I mean, the first time I saw a plastic flower, I almost vomited in horror. It was the, the idea of it. It was just so wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, the beauty is in not just the curve and the color, it's in the ephemeral nature of it, the fact that it's going to change. And that's what Ireland has. It has life and death. It has beauty with change. It has checks with reason. It has all kinds of other things that, fit, that either, either have informed my philosophy or uh, are, in fact, big chunks of it. It would be Nocturnae. Now, I'm not as fond of a spot called Ross's Point uh, as other people are. Other people have associations of the golf course and Osties and sailing and stuff like that. But there's one thing that I treasure Ross's Point for, and that's, that it is the most heartbreakingly beautiful view of Nocturnae. Uh, you get its full length. You can see the cairn very clearly. Uh, and it's, it's not brooding at all. If you... Under, under the Balasadere side of it, it's sometimes the, the, the weight of the cliff hanging over you is, is a, bit, a bit intimidating. But from the Ross's Point side, you can see that it's simply, it's simply um, um, an, an omphalos, uh, a knot, um, uh, an, an umbilicus of, of the world itself, which is a, a good way of thinking of Ireland in general. And it's definitely the only way to think of Sligo. Even when you went to dances, you taught people in Ireland had money and uh, that they had better this and better that than you had. And when you come down to reality, it was the same for all that came. I mean, we all had to leave and go out there to better ourselves. And in the end, everyone near, I can't think of anyone that didn't do pretty good. And in the end, all you get is six foot, not one inch more than the guy that had millions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.